0: we come to our text this morning. We're in the middle of Ephesians chapter 5. As you're turning to Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, just a brief reminder of the context and where we are. We've been looking at chapters 4 and 5 over recent months where Paul's been describing how to walk worthy of God's calling to us as his people. And Paul's particularly called us to walk in unity with one another bearing with one another and eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace with each other as God's people and Paul's also called us to walk in holiness describing the behaviors that we ought to put off and the behaviors we ought to put on as God's people who have been recreated in the likeness of Christ that we might walk as wise as children of the light not taking part in the works of darkness, but discerning how to please the Lord. This is where we've been in recent weeks, and this morning we're turning what, to what is really the end of a section in Paul's letter here, with four verses that are of utmost importance for us, if we're going to live as followers of Christ, because these verses describe the only source of power, the only ability that we have as God's people to walk as Paul calls us to walk here in Ephesians. So if you would turn with me, Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to read verses 18 through 21. This is God's word. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Father, how we thank you for your word, your spirit has inspired and written this word for us, and we know that you continue to apply it to our hearts. Would you make us more like you, be at work in us through your word this morning? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. We all know as we look back on the year 2020 that in many years it was unlike any other year in memory. But in a small and likely overlooked way, as Pennsylvanians, 2020 was actually just like 2019. In that, for the second year in a row, Pennsylvania's legislature passed harsher penalties on drunk driving with over 10,000 alcohol-related crashes and over 300 deaths due to drunk driving each year in Pennsylvania alone. It shouldn't be a surprise that in 2020, Pennsylvania's legislator voted 184 to 1. I'm not sure who the one was for these stricter penalties and limits. But despite the obvious dangers... From drunk driving with these statistics, the Atlantic Magazine ran an article just this month in its current issue under the title, America Has a Drinking Problem, because it turns out that in a year that highlighted our isolation, our anxieties, our vulnerabilities, a year has also highlighted a trend of turning to alcohol for help. To influence us in an attempt to bring us community, offer us relief from pain, and to give us at least a small avenue for some moments of carefree happiness. And Paul begins our passage this morning by addressing the topic of drunkenness. But as he does so, Paul's main point is primarily not about alcohol, it's primarily about influence. And the question Paul's asking is, what will be the influence in our hearts and lives? And in his discussion about how Christians ought to live if they've been united to Christ, Paul's point is that our ability to walk worthy of the calling of God depends upon our being filled with or being under the influence of God's Holy Spirit. In our time together this morning, I want to do two things. I want to first look at what it means to be filled with the Spirit. And then secondly, I want to ask what are the effects of being filled with the Spirit. So let's jump in and begin by zeroing in on verse 18 as we ask what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Now if you remember from last week in the immediate context, Paul has just been urging the Ephesians not to take part in the unfruitful works of darkness, nor to walk as unwise or foolish. And it's really perfectly logical for him to go on then to urge them not to get drunk with wine. Because if we think across the pages of Scripture, drunkenness is repeatedly characterized as part of our works of darkness and as foolishness. Romans chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 6 Galatians chapter 5, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 4 all mention drunkenness and identify it as one of the sins that characterize our lives apart from Christ. And Proverbs mentions drunkenness multiple times as an act of foolishness. And so it makes perfect sense for Paul to move from acts of darkness and foolishness to drunkenness as one of those. Paul says that drunkenness is debauchery, Now, debauchery is probably not a word we toss around uh, on a regular basis, but the word that Paul uses here is a word that literally means to act recklessly without regard for the consequences. Isn't that a perfect word to use to describe drunkenness? And I think Paul's point is clear. Drunkenness is part of the character that you put off in Christ. It is the opposite of the fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord, each action is weighed given who God is and his power and authority and holiness. Drunkenness, as Paul says, is to act recklessly without regard for consequences. It is the opposite of wisdom. And so Paul calls us not to be drunk with wine. But again, Paul's main concern is about influence. Now, I think we have a pretty good idea of what it looks like to be influenced by alcohol and drunkenness. A person decides to fill themselves with alcohol, which suppresses their inhibitions. It leads them to think, act, and respond differently. And the influence of alcohol is so marked and pronounced that most of us can easily look at a person and say, oh, they're drunk. And of course, Paul's logic here doesn't need to be restricted just to alcohol. We can look at other substances as well that are used to influence us. But Paul's argument is that while a DUI driving under the influence may deserve its condemnation from both Scripture and the law, but our hope for walking worthy of our calling in Christ must come from something outside of us. We cannot hope to walk worthy of Christ in holiness, in godliness, in our own strength, nor can any other substance help us. Such ability can only be found in a constant L-U-I, living under the influence of God's Holy Spirit. And this should really make sense from what we know from God's Word and about ourselves, shouldn't it? After all, even once we have come to Christ, our flesh continues to bear the habits and desires of our sinful nature. And it is only the Holy Spirit of God who is able to overcome the flesh. But the Holy Spirit is able to overcome the flesh. That's what Paul tells us repeatedly. For the Spirit is nothing less than the third person of the Trinity, of God Himself. And if you think back to our discussions in Ephesians chapter 1, we said that the Holy Spirit is the personal power and presence of God who lives in us and with us if we have put our faith in Christ, Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way God's Spirit is the blast of God, the irresistible power by which He accomplishes His purposes. He is God extending Himself to be with His creation, with us, in a personal way. And it is this influence of the Holy Spirit of God that does the opposite of what substances do, it heightens our self control. It enables genuine love and true joy and leads us to act in a way that is not normal for we and ourselves, but to act in Christ-like holiness for the glory of God. And so for each one of us, we must be filled with the Spirit as the influence that will enable us to live as God calls us to. Now, this is true theologically, but maybe we would ask the question, well, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? You when Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit here, I think he has something particular in mind. There's many ways we might look at Scripture and hear phrases like to be filled with the Spirit or have the Spirit fill us, and we need to be careful to think what exactly Paul is referring to. Paul is not talking about a unique Spirit-filling event in this passage, Such as, maybe if you think back to the Old Testament, you would think about passages such as the Holy Spirit filling Samson who goes out and kills a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Or like the day of Pentecost, a unique day when the Spirit came and descended on the apostles and filled them and tongues of fire appeared on their heads and and they spoke in a multitude of languages. Paul's not talking about specific, unique moments like that. Nor is Paul talking about the initial moment of conversion. If you think to the book of Acts, there are many times when someone comes to Christ for the first time in the books of Acts, and and it says that the Spirit filled them. And we know that anyone who comes to Christ and puts their faith in Him, is united to Him, Jesus sends the Spirit to them. That's That's an initial moment of conversion when the Spirit fills us. Paul's not talking about that either. See, the grammar that Paul uses, a present tense verb in this context, indicates that he's talking about an ongoing, continual influence in the believer's life. Something that, just like drunkenness, produces fruit that can be observed by others. It's something that is constantly or regularly true of a person. We see this in the book of Acts as well. For instance, maybe you remember Acts chapter 6. You remember there was a problem in the church, and that is that there were some widows who were not being served or helped. The apostles needed help. And they said, you should set apart seven men who will be committed to physical aid so we can keep our attention on preaching the word. And what did they say about those men? They said, choose seven men who are full of good repute full of the Holy Spirit and in wisdom for the task. And what was being described there wasn't a one-time event or a unique feeling. It was a characteristic of them such that they could be described as full of the Holy Spirit. The same is true in Acts 11. Barnabas is described as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. In Acts chapter 13, the same phrase is used to, to refer to the whole church at Antioch. The gathering of believers in Antioch are described as filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. You see, in in these passages, being full of the Holy Spirit is not a moment of spiritual high. It's not a moment of, of second baptism of the Spirit that descends to give a particular gift. It's rather a phrase that is used to describe a characteristic that is observable of a person or a community a characteristic of a life so clearly marked by the influence and fruit of the Holy Spirit, so in reliance upon the Holy Spirit, that they can be described as full of God's Spirit. And so this is what Paul is talking about here. But there's another part of Paul's grammar, and I realize I'm talking about grammar here, which may bring up some moments of terror or ptsd for some of our uh, you know sixth grade grammar students who had to diagram sentences on the board but grammar is important and we need to look at the grammar here not only is this a present tense ongoing continual mark of someone but this verb is also a command and that is very significant because it means that paul is not saying that believers will simply automatically be full of the holy spirit Paul gives a direction, an instruction, a command to believers to be filled with the Spirit. And while we know that God's Spirit is sovereign, and God alone acts to convict our hearts of sin and to bring us to repentance and faith, here Paul is addressing the person who is a believer, who has been united to Christ, and who has received the Spirit, and he's urging that believer, be filled with or be influenced by, not wine, but the Holy Spirit. So what is it that we're being encouraged to do? How are we to be filled with the Spirit? What will make people look at us and say, oh, they are living L-U-I, living under the influence of God's Spirit? Well, I think the Bible gives us two clues. The first, on the one hand, the Bible tells us that we are to be conscious of the Spirit's presence with us, and that we are to be led by the Spirit or to walk in step with the Spirit. So you might think of 1 Corinthians six nineteen, where Paul reminds us that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit dwells with us. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great preacher who wrote six volumes on the book of Ephesians, He says, the first step to being filled with the Spirit is to remember that the Holy Spirit is a gracious and willing guest dwelling within us. It is because we so constantly forget His presence with us that we are not filled with the Spirit and not influenced by Him. We are content to keep the Spirit at an arm's distance, perhaps. Let Him work in His realm and we walk in ours instead of remembering that he is with us and in us at all times. But Paul adds in Romans eight fourteen that we are to be led by the Spirit of God if we are sons of God. And in Galatians 5, he adds that we are to walk in step with the Spirit so that we will not gratify the flesh. And I think these are important and helpful phrases to know what we are to do if we are to be full of the Spirit. Now this phrase, walk in step with the Spirit, is very helpful, but maybe an analogy might also be helpful. If you've ever gotten a new puppy, it needs to be trained. And as you're attempting to train this new puppy, maybe it's not your first item in priority, but one thing you might train your puppy to do is to heal while you take it for a walk. Now to teach a dog to heal means that your dog walks right alongside you. It doesn't jerk forward or pull backward or endanger your rotator cuff at every mailbox. We want the dog to walk and step with us. And, And how does a dog learn to heal? What does a dog need to do in order to heal? Well, it needs to always remember at every moment that it is walking with its owner who is setting its direction and setting its pace. And when it remembers that at every moment, it will heal. But too often, the dog is distracted. It's not thinking about its owner. It's not keeping step. And so it's off to chase this or that. And I think if we were to consider our own hearts and lives, we are often like a particular dog from one of my favorite Pixar movies, Up. If you've seen Up, you know the dog named Doug. And Doug is constantly distracted. He can hardly finish a sentence before a squirrel, a ball. And that's the way we are in life. We hardly take a few steps before we're distracted by this in life or that in life. And we're pulled away from the Spirit. And we, we forget who it is we're walking with. Who it is is leading us. Who it is is with us. And so Paul is encouraging us first to keep in step with the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. By always remembering His presence with us. Being led by Him. Listening to Him. Living out the fruits of his presence in us. So that's the first clue that Scripture gives us. The Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. We are to be led by him and keep in step with him. But the second clue the Bible gives us comes from Colossians chapter 3. And I would actually like you to turn over to Colossians 3 if you have your Bibles with you, because I want to make sure we see clearly and carefully what Paul is saying here. Some of you may know that Paul wrote the letter's of Colossians and Ephesians at the same time. They were sent, we think, by the same person. And so it's not surprising that there are some similarities between Ephesians and Colossians. But in this passage, Paul in Colossians 3 writes almost the exact same encouragement and almost the exact same words that he uses in Ephesians chapter 5. If you start in verse 16 and and begin to look through those verses, you'll see that Paul tells the Colossians to teach one another with wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. That should sound familiar. Same thing in our passage in Ephesians 5. He says to do everything in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to Him. Same command that we have in Ephesians 5. Then he goes on in verses 18 and following to address wives and husbands, children and parents, masters and slaves, same order as we have in Ephesians. So there's a very close similarity between Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. But what I want you to notice is right at the beginning of verse 16, that instead of starting by saying, be filled with the Spirit, he begins by saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And what I think we can say is that in the logic of Paul's mind, there is a very close parallel between being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Those phrases play the same role in Paul's arguments. And this should make perfect sense because who has given us the words of Christ? It's the Holy Spirit who is dwelling with Christ And then who spoke, carrying along the men who wrote Scripture, as Peter tells us, so that the Scriptures are themselves the words of God's Holy Spirit. And so the second clue that Scripture gives us is that perhaps the best way to be filled with the Spirit is to be constantly letting the words of Christ and of His Scriptures fill our minds and our hearts, shaping our decisions and influencing our wills as we let the Word of Christ dwell in us constantly and richly and fill us, it is the words of the Holy Spirit Himself who will be constantly filling us and with us. So if we step back, Paul's point here. He calls the Ephesians to make God's Spirit the dominant influence in their hearts and lives, constantly remembering the Spirit's presence with them, remembering the words of Christ the Spirit has given us in Scripture, following the lead of the Spirit, so that our life is influenced fully by Him and marked by His fruit. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Well, let's look then at the effects of living under the influence of the Spirit. And you flip back to Ephesians 5, and in verses 19 to 21, Paul lists four. Four effects of being filled with the Spirit. The first two come in verse 19, where Paul says that being filled with the Spirit will lead us to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, Paul's not saying that if we're filled with the Spirit, we're going to stop just talking to each other and break out in song to one another. That would just be weird. He's talking about our time in worship together. And Paul is noting that when the Spirit fills us, there will be both a horizontal aspect to worship and a vertical aspect of worship It will influence how we speak to one another. He says, in worship, we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, as we speak to one another and sing together in worship, we are actually encouraging one another in our faith and worship. But then there's also the vertical aspect. We sing to the Lord with our whole heart. I think if you were to quickly reflect on the Psalms, you would find this same pairing of the horizontal benefit and blessing of worship and the vertical focus of worship. For instance, you might think of Psalm 95, which is sung to one another. It begins, oh come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. We're teaching and encouraging one another. And then you might think of Psalm 138, which speaks primarily to the Lord, starting, I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart before the gods, I sing your praise. And so in our worship, we have to be encouraging one another and singing with a whole heart to the Lord. You know, the call to sing and make melody in our hearts to the Lord has always been a verse of great encouragement to the more musically challenged among our congregation. Your vocal tones may not be overly melodious. But what is important is that all of you, all of you in heart, soul, mind, and strength be engaged in singing praise to the Lord. I was reminded of this personally a couple of weeks ago when several of our nursery volunteers came to me after the worship service and they said, you know, they forgot to turn your mic off during the hymns. And so we were treated to several solos by you during the singing, and and the comment that usually followed went something like, I appreciate that you sing with joy, (laughs) but you should probably stick to preaching whenever possible. That's a point well taken. But Paul's point here is that when God's people are filled with the Spirit, we don't just show up in church. We don't sit back and listen to some music or a sermon or mumble some words for an hour. No, we come here to teach and encourage each other, to remind one another of God's goodness and grace in Christ and of the Spirit's presence in our lives. And we come here to engage with our whole heart, with our whole mind, with our whole strength to give praise to the Lord. That is the effect of being filled with the Spirit. Well, then in verse 20, Paul gives us a third effect of being Spirit-filled. When he says that the Spirit-filled believer will give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. You notice that giving thanks to God is a Trinitarian activity filled with the Spirit, giving thanks to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul describes is a thorough an all-encompassing attitude of overflowing praise and thanks that permeates the life of the Spirit-filled believer. Now, how do we get to the place of having an overflowing life of thanksgiving? Well, it comes from having hearts that are genuinely struck by the immensity of God's blessings by the unexpectedly and persistently gracious and generous heart of the one whose steadfast love and mercy constantly treat us beyond what we deserve. The problem, of course, is that no matter how great God's love and goodness and generosity are, our minds and our hearts are so quickly and so easily pulled to grumble about what we don't like about our days right now. I think we are often like kids who have been surprised by their parents with an unexpected gift, a trip to Disney World. But they show up and have hardly set foot in the magic kingdom before they start complaining because it's so hot or the lines are so long and we don't like this or that. And as a parent, I'm like, come on, this is what I just did for you. But isn't that our hearts daily? You know, I'm so quick to judge Israel in Exodus, for marveling at God's redemption, only to start complaining and grumbling about when the food ran short on the way to the land flowing with milk and honey. But we respond in the same way. I rejoice at God's goodness on one day that goes well, and the next day it doesn't go the way I want, and I'm grumpy. Think in an era where Amazon promises to satisfy all of your desires in 24 hours with a simple click of a mouse. Well, that was anachronistic we don't click on mouse mice anymore do we simple click on our phones we're perhaps more ready than ever to decry waiting needing patience enduring difficulty while we wait to see what God is going to do for his people but that's not how a spirit-filled person responds because a spirit-filled person is regularly remembering that God's spirit is dwelling in them sharing with them His delight in the Father and in the work of the Son, deploying all the resources of the sovereign divine power to turn all things to our good and to His glory. And so the person who is full of faith and of the Holy Spirit will be marked always and in everything by giving thanks to God the Father in the name of our Savior Jesus. And then fourthly, in verse 21, Spirit-filled people submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, this verse is really a transition verse. Paul's going to unpack what this verse means in the next three weeks over the next 20 verses. But in brief today, verse 21 tells us that God has established specific relationships that involve leadership and submission within the body of Christ for its good. And it's very important for us to note when we read this verse that while the Bible makes clear that every believer ought to serve every other believer, every believer ought to consider other believers, all other believers, more important than themselves in humility. While well, that is true. That's not what this verse is saying. The grammar in context of this verse make it clear That submitting to one another does not mean that every believer submits to every other believer, but rather within the context of the body, God has established specific relationships that we will all find ourselves in in different ways that involve submitting to some of our fellow believers. And we do so because it is God's pattern. Of course, submitting to others runs against the grain of our flesh But in a spirit-filled body of God's people, there will be willing and joyful submission where God calls for it. And that submission will be honored and protected by sacrificial love from those in leadership so that the whole body functions with humility, grace, and joy and becomes what God calls it to be. And the reason that spirit-filled believers are willing to submit one another is because of their reverence for Christ. As we will see again and again in the coming weeks, God's people do not submit to one another because the people they submit to are just really awesome. No, believers love, honor, and fear Jesus Christ as our King and our Savior. And because of our love and honor for Him, we are willing to joyfully do whatever He calls us to in any situation. And so as we come to the end of this passage, Paul's encouragement to us, brothers and sisters, is to be filled with the Spirit. Remember the Spirit's presence with us. Don't hold Him at arm's length, but be led by Him. Walk in step with Him with minds set on the Word of Christ so that our lives will be marked by encouraging one another in our worship, singing praise with our whole hearts to the Lord, giving thanks to God in all things, and submitting to one another as God calls us to out of reverence for Christ. If I could end with this final comment. If you were to step back and look at the last four or five sermons over the last month or two from Ephesians, you would find a fairly thorough summary of what it looks like to live the Christian life. We've talked about putting away falsehood and speaking the truth in love. We've talked about putting away anger and bitterness in order to be kind, tender, and forgive one another. We've talked about loving one another and not committing to sexual immorality. We've talked about living in light rather than darkness, not being drunk, but living in the Spirit. But the danger of coming to an end of a section like this is that we might build up a nice picture of how Christians ought to live. And we might begin to think that the essence of our job as Christians is to live this life and to tell others to live according to these standards as well. But no one and no sermon will ever change another person or change society by telling it to live a certain way or to side with a particular position. And nor should that be its goal. Again, to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, he declared that if the church is anxious that her teaching should impact the lives of others around them, the way to accomplish that is not to preach politics, It's not to preach about social matters. It's not to protest against this sin or that sin. It is to do one thing and one thing only. And that is to preach the pure gospel. The good news that Jesus offers forgiveness for sins and a new life through faith in Him. For the only way that any person will ever want to or find it possible to follow these commands. The only thing that enables a community to live in Christ-like godliness is to be changed by and filled by the Holy Spirit as the personal presence and power of God in them. Yes, God's Word has told us how to live and we need that. But we will only be able to do that if we come to Christ first. The only way to receive the power of the Holy Spirit in us is to realize the depth of our sinful rebellion and our failure to please God and it's to repent and to put our faith in Christ. And Christ alone who has died on the cross to take away the wrath of God that is owed to me. Jesus has drunk the cup of God's wrath that I deserve to drink. And having drunk it for me, I can be set free if I put my trust in Him. And when I look to Jesus in faith, He unites me to Himself and sends His Spirit to live in me. And it is His Spirit who changes me, who fills me, who gives me new loves, new desires, and new commitments, so that I am now living under the influence of God's Spirit, that I might walk as God calls me to walk. I don't know everyone here this morning. I don't know where you come from or what your position is, whether you know Jesus or not. But my plea this morning is this, may we all, with eyes and hearts fixed on the only Savior Jesus Christ, mindful of the Spirit's presence with us, and letting Christ's Word dwell richly in our hearts, may we be recognized and known as those who are full of joy, full of faith, and full of the Holy Spirit to the glory of our God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you for what you have done in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, may we never minimize the depth of our sin. May we never begin to think that we can accomplish this pattern of life in our own strength. We have no hope except through Jesus Christ. May we put our faith in him and how we thank you for your Holy Spirit whom you send to live in us. May we be filled with your spirit. May we live under the influence of your spirit that may we, we may walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And we ask this, rejoicing in Jesus Christ for the glory of his name, amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m., To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.